Different Perspectives, a new podcast from Affect Autism. Welcome back to Parent Perspectives. I am excited this week to have a guest with me from Parent Support Group that I facilitate through the International Council on Development and Learning. Cass Griffin-Bennett is back. You might remember her from the last edition of Parent Perspectives. She's in Washington State. She's an autistic mother of two autistic daughters. Thank you so much for doing this podcast with me, Cass. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Daria. And I thought it was really fitting to have Cass for this one because we are recounting our parent support meeting in October where we had guest autistic self-advocate Kieran Rose with us from the UK. He was our guest who um, fielded questions from parents and it was um, so informative and helpful. Uh, We had 23 people attending and um, yeah, it was a great parent support group. It is always great when we can have autistic self-advocates come and talk to parents, because I really think that many parents, when they're first starting out on this journey, have never actually heard from an adult autistic person. Um, They've been part of the like medical diagnosis process or educational diagnosis process and have been really mired in a lot of language, right? That is not the same language necessarily that adult autistic advocates tell us to use. So hearing, I think from autistic adults and particularly from autistic parents um, of autistic kids is really, really valuable. It is, I know that my learning really fast forwarded once I was introduced to that uh, reading posts made by self-advocates and also getting to do past podcasts with Kieran Rose whom Virginia Spielman introduced me to. And she is the director of the STAR Institute um, and you know talks about sensory processing, but also she is a DIR expert and training leader. And she also recently was diagnosed with um, autism herself. Now, the thing is, um, I will say that I think parents are very confused by it because of the false narrative that Virginia and Karen and I spoke about in our Redefining the Autism Narrative podcast, part one and two, where we have this false narrative out there that autism looks like this. And so they say, what do you mean, autistic adults? You don't look autistic, Cass. Kieran, you don't look autistic. And that false narrative is out there. So for that, I will direct people to Kieran's course, The Inside of Autism. Um, I took it. It's a seven-week course. It's, It's phenomenal. He goes through all of the myths, all of the history, how everything started and where this word autism came from and how the DSM and all of that stuff. It's really, really fabulous. We also did a podcast together called adult diagnosis and what it means, which was a part two to the diagnosis or the podcast called to whom should parents listen. Um, We did another podcast called good intentions, creating unseen stigma about this false narrative and how a lot of people that want to help autistic children, of course, their heart is in the right place, but sometimes they might be creating this unseen stigma. So let's dive in and hear what happened at our parent support meeting. So I started by reading a statement about my son that some parents might say in describing their children. And of course, I don't say this about my son, but I wanted to say it as an example to hear Kieran's feedback about it. So I read, hi, Kieran, my son is 14 and he's a bit between low and high functioning. 
He's very rigid in his thinking. He doesn't yet have theory of mind or empathy. He's very repetitive and always asking me the same questions over and over again. And I said to Karen, parents do say these things. So um, I wanted to hear a self-advocate perspective about this way of describing our autistic children. So Karen said he would definitely reframe this. He says, we only have the language we've been given. And many of this language comes from professional perspectives based on observation. So looking at these children and looking at what they're doing in comparison to other children, who of course are neurotypical, this hasn't included the insight of the people actually experiencing being autistic. They're making a lot of guesses and judgments and using normative thinking. So autistic children develop in very different ways, he said. Also, everything gets swept into that label of autism and doesn't look at the co-occurring conditions, of which there's over 100, which he talks about in his course, that never get looked at unless they're really obvious. So for instance, some people might have autism sensory processing disorder. Others might be autistic and have OCD. Others might be autistic and have ADHD and OCD. Others, and again, lists of 100. <laughs> and Kieran continued uh, that the ways that we describe our autistic children can have a big impact on them, how they feel about themselves, how they're viewed. Often when children are non-speaking, we assume they can't hear us well. We'll go to medical appointments and often talk about our children in, in those sort of medicalized ways right in front of them. And they take on those narratives. Uh, Kieran would say, there is a way to reframe everything that we've said so far. <laughs> uh, we know about modern cutting edge research that can reframe those narratives in a supportive way. Children need validation, support, and they do not need changing. Um, what are we changing them to? To what we think they should be, to not what their natural state is. And Daria, I believe you pointed out that we talked about all these things in your podcast. Um, so to check out what Kieran had previously said about functioning labels, I remember that. And this part, you know, hit home for me as a parent, because I am the parent of um, a non-speaking child. And it's, it's really difficult from a practical standpoint, not even the non-speaking child, but also the speaking child. Just the logistics of therapy appointments are actually really challenging with regard to this really simple request, right? Like that you don't speak about them in front of them, but also you're a parent, you're taking your child to an appointment. You really don't have other, other moments to talk with that OT, to talk with that SLP um, about what's going on. So you have to get sort of artful about it, or you have to implement other processes like uh, so one of our OTs sends me an email after every time, right? And that's my opportunity to pop back if there's anything that I want to make sure I say, uh, because you definitely have to sort of shift so that the kids don't take on only hearing about the hard things, right? Because imagine how much just hearing your parents talk about how hard things or cer certain things are or how not typical they are, imagine what that does to your, your self-worth over time, right? Yeah, and, and I think about it in a couple of different ways. Like for sure, we don't want to talk about our kids in front of them and, and hearing those kinds of deficit terms. But also I think, you know, when they, we in our mind have that comparison, like, oh, they're going to um, 
notice that they're different from the other kids or whatever. But that also may be us imposing that on them. Like they may not know any different. And if we're not saying necessarily harmful things, but more just descriptive things, it might not be super harmful per se. But Karen added that when we talk about autistic kids being different, he says, well, different how? Different than we want them to be? Because that means on a societal level, but actually, if we're using different in the correct way, he said, there are reasons why autistic people might be repetitive. And that theory of mind can look different in autistic people. It's not that it's not there. And of course, I have a podcast with um, OT Maude LaRue on um, why theory of mind is developmental. So whether you're autistic or whether you're neurotypical, like a two-year-old neurotypical kid does not have theory of mind yet. So it's just it's developmental. It, it happens when it happens. But to have that idea that autistics don't have theory of mind is definitely false. So um, yeah, and it can be different between different people. And it's certainly culturally influenced, Karen says. So um, yeah, very, very interesting. And I also want to say I've taken Karen's course too, um, inside of autism, and I recommend it. I learned a lot. I'm autistic and ADHD. And, um, and I kind of thought, I knew a lot of things, right? But Kieran's course, I think, has something for everybody, no matter where you're sort of starting at, for parents and professionals too. And he has so many um, different autistic people taking the course too, from all walks of life, from different age groups, from everything. Lots of practitioners come to get educated about it and, and certainly parents and many parents who then find out that they are also autistic, which makes sense because autism is genetic and our kids are like us. And so usually there's something neurodivergent floating around there in, in the genes. So <laughs> um, yeah, then another parent was wondering, and this is a huge question. We get this all the time at Parent Support Group how to help prepare their child for surgery because the child gets so anxious, they'll literally vomit and pass out. And so Kieran explained that with his own child, they brought uh, his daughter to a dentist appointment um, every three weeks and just sat in the chair. And then the next time they sat in the chair and waited and saw if it was okay to turn on the lights or turn them off and turn them on and wear sunglasses. And then that the next time they did something further. So the child needed the slow, steady drip of doing just a little bit each time, building up that sense of safety with the dentist. I know with my son, we did something similar. Um, you have to find a dentist who is open to that and not impatient. <laughs> uh, Karen would say he would not force an autistic child through it or else it will provide even more trauma. And if the child notices that the people who are doing the surgery or the medical team, whatever, are actually slowing down and listening to them, then the child might actually surprise you. So Karen was wondering, is the surgery urgent? Can it wait? Can the child use other forms of communication in the meantime for speech? Um, using multiple forms of communication, even for children who can speak, can be so helpful. And that things will happen when they happen and making those processes very slow and helping the child get used to it is really important. So um, yeah, I mean, if it's in a hospital setting, they can put in reasonable adjustments for disabled people. I think that's the law. And the child needs more um, supportive and relationship-based type approaches with these kinds of appointments just to avoid that kind of trauma. So you can do all the work you want with your child, 
But what about the people that are actually doing the surgery? They're the ones that need to help and lower the stress for the child. So having that, um, and this is weird because in Floriton, we talk about the inside out approach, which is something different than what Kieran said about this, which is it needs to be an outside in approach in this case, where that sense of safety needs to come from those people who are doing the surgery. The safety isn't coming from inside himself. It's, it's those people around him that are doing the surgery that need to show him that he will be safe and reassure him. So it may not be a perfect fix and it might not work, but if they can at least put in that extra level of work for someone is who is disabled. Um, and, you know, the parent wondered, like, what about putting the date on, of the surgery on the calendar? But then, you know, in we say in some cases, like, okay, we want our children to be prepared and have the schedules and visuals to support them. But in this case, the child will see it on the calendar. Even if it's months away, they're going to be worried and worried and have this point of anxiety. And Karen agreed. He said, this might be 10 steps ahead. <laughs> and so let's instead have the conversations that the doctors think that this will help you. And what do you think about this surgery and just kind of getting the child's feel for it? maybe using um, role play in a playful scenario, doing play with characters or whatever way that they play um, will help the child contextualize. And, but beyond that, there has to be some responsibility from those doing the surgery. He just kept stressing that. So this was super helpful. And um, I think it, it helped and resonated with lots of parents. Yeah. I'm, I, I, felt for the parent who asked the question, because I think when we add on, you know, there's, there's preparing your kids for the dentist and things like that, that are sort of routine maintenance things. Right. And then there's surgery after you already have medical trauma. Right. And that is just sort of like, gosh, that is going to be so individualized to the child, right? And sort of what happened already. But we have to be able to look to these providers to be actual care partners with us on this. And and that is, it's rare to be totally honest um, with the way that our medical systems are to find the right providers for that sort of thing. It's It's hard to find a, a dentist who understands that, right? Much less sort of the the more complex situations. And my kids are the same about putting things on the calendar. It is it is actually not very helpful. We <laughs> um, we can sort of perseverate over the anxiety. So I, I definitely appreciated that part. Another parent asked about supporting their child who is five years old to communicate about things that happen at school. At home, he has a good vocabulary. They know what the child feels about things. A child can say that they feel left out or they didn't like that. It makes the parents feel worried that they don't really know what's going on at school. Um, they would like the child to be able to say things about if someone is mean to them, something happened at school that they don't like. Over the weekend, they started to see a stress behavior. So they wondered if the child is getting sick um, or something's going on at school. They don't really have a way to know. Um, and Kieran responded with, he's five. For a child that young, being in a new environment, that's a massive thing. It might take some more time to settle into that rhythm and understand what it's like to be at school. Uh, also, Kieran said that he thinks about masking if the child is tired or run down on the weekend. If the child is not comfortable in the school environment and it's running them down, they'll be significantly tired on the weekends. 
One of the hard things is that the child might not be able to pinpoint what makes the kid uncomfortable if something is making the kid uncomfortable. It could be a rumbling of sensory things or social interactions that the child is not yet able to figure out. Um, it might be hard for the child to know what's bothering them. Kieran said that the parents are doing the right thing by being a detective. That's actually something that I remember him saying and, and really liking. We suggested talking about how the child's body is feeling. Are there things that make the child feel like there are butterflies in their tummy, for instance? He also suggested having someone at school that the child trusts um, and feels like they can go to, a staff member uh, who feels safe, even if they aren't together all the time. So not necessarily suggesting a one-on-one -on -one situation, but someone that the kid knows they can go to. It could be an avenue to make the child feel a little bit more comfortable at school. It will be important to help the child voice this as well. And these are things that we run into with, with both of our kids, right? For one, with my non-speaking daughter, I have a lot of anxiety about what's going on at school that I can't know about and can't really find out. And I always feel like I'm being a detective of some kind, right? But for my speaking daughter, who is who just turned seven, it's very similar, actually, right? Because kids of the age we're talking about have a hard time sort of talking about things that make them uncomfortable or things that are hard at school, or maybe they're just too tired to go into it by the time they get home. And so we've, we are sort of always trying to find those right moments to talk about things with our older daughter. For us, nonverbal communication tools have been really helpful for that. My older daughter, who's seven, who does speak, right, is able to share, um, but she has a, a card that she really likes that allows her on one side to talk about you know, how I feel and it has some feelings and the other side says what I need. Um, and so she's able to, you know, ask for, or tell us like, I need to be alone. Um, I need my weighted blanket. I need my noise canceling headphones, things like that. And it also has a spot on there that is, I need help. And that for us has been a really useful tool because she's able to access telling us that with her nonverbal communication tool much easier than she is to tell us verbally that. Um, and that may not give us all the information, right, at all, but at least it lets us know that there's something to be a detective about, right? I love um, that. So. Yeah, even for non, even for speaking, children yeah. like your your daughter you said the older one is speaking but i'm thinking even for um my son who's much older who's very very talkative you know he he doesn't yet have that sense of time that sort of comes in the sixth functional emotional developmental capacity so if i say something like but what happens at school he might re recall something that happened 4 years ago that he marked if um we think about dr ira glavinsky's um, components of the relationship. One of them was marking. And, you know, he he's marked that incident where a certain kid did something at school that really was funny to him or really, you know, stood out in some other way because the child was upset and crying or child got sick or whatever it was that he marked, you know, he might recall that. And, and he's not saying anything about what happened that day. 
So, um, yeah, just it, it, it is a detective, uh, a detective game for sure. And, you know, I'm sure it is with neurotypical children too. Like kids don't come home and say, oh, this is exactly what happened at school. And this is what happened. And this is what, what made me feel sad. And this is what made me feel hurt. Like we just don't do that. Right. So, and it's especially tricky with our autistic children. Uh, the parents that asked this question had some kind of suspicion something was going on at school. So they actually asked, is something bothering you about what happened at school? And the child said, yes. Um, and they they mentioned, and again, um, you know, we talked about um, in a podcast with Kieran and Amy Pearson about their new book about autistic masking that, that you referenced in the question. Um, they said their child's default is to nod and be a people pleaser. So the parent wanted to really make sure not to lead the child, but the child on their own offered that they thought the speech therapist hates them. And so this really startled the parents because the child never says things like that. So um, yeah, they have a 45 minute speech therapy appointment each week, and they were going to have a meeting with that speech therapist that, um, and the child wouldn't say anything further. So they they wanted to know from Kieran, like, how do we get to the core without being judgmental or blaming the therapist? Because who knows what actually happened? And I liked Karen's answer a lot. He said it, it could be the way that the therapist is asking the child to do things. Um, so you could ask the therapist, oh, can you describe what happens in your sessions? And then, um, unfortunately, Kieran says ABA has encroached into speech and language therapy, so they possibly could be asking the child to conform to things that aren't natural for the child, as autistic children speak in different ways. And it, But it might not be this, but until they have more information, it'll be hard to unpack what's happening. So maybe the child just doesn't like that adult, Kieran said. <laughs> if we don't like people, we don't talk to them as adults, but children don't have that option. They don't have the agency yet to sort of block people out of their lives they don't want to speak with, right? So um, yeah, finding out what happens in the sessions, mention that the child is significantly uncomfortable in their presence and what can we do about it. Karen said, if the child can speak so well, why do they need speech therapy? In the IEP, it's for social interaction. So if the child is very silly, um, it's the way the child will ask another child to play with them. They might be silly about it. I know my son does this too. It's not a typical way of getting other children to play with you. Um, and then that's where I loved Karen's educating the parents about this. All of us, not these particular parents, but all of us. Karen says there shouldn't be anything in the IEP, in, um, uh, what is it called? Individualized Education Plan in the blog post for today's Parent Perspectives, I'll have a resources box with um, a link to the podcast I did about IEPs with Jackie Bartell, an educator, about putting in uh, developmental goals that the parents don't agree with. And this kind of thing seems to be a very normative goal. So the parents did say, yes, we, we've rewritten the goals for the benefit of their child. And but they also do want their child to be able to interact with other children and know how to ask them to play. But Karen says, well, the flip side of this is in social skills training, which ugh, that terminology makes me uh, cringe. We tend to only focus on the neurotypical person and not on the autistic person. It actually takes two people to communicate. So it's not their child's problem necessarily. We can also inform the other children. This is how so-and-so communicates. And if the child were 
came into the school, Karen mentions, speaking a different language, there would be a common ground extended, but autistic children are essentially speaking a different language, so to speak, uh, from a cultural lens, Karen said. So the pressure shouldn't be on that child to change the way they communicate. The peers should also be taught to communicate with the child. So I understand that if, you know, there's a school of 800 people and there's like, let's say whatever, 80 or 90 autistic kids, yes, the majority are this way. And don't you want the minority to conform to the majority? But it goes both ways. Like it can help everybody by learning how to communicate with other people and appreciate each other's differences. So yeah, um, Karen was basically saying, let's validate the children's natural ways of communication before we start asking them to change to meet other people's needs. And of course, this is all just assumptions because we don't know what happened with the speech therapist and the child, but he's just speculating that these could be things to think about. Um, it might be making the child uncomfortable to have to communicate in a way that isn't natural to them. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There was so much that he talked about during that, that I wanted to like pop in and be like, yes, 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 that too, that too. It, that is a personal pet peeve of mine, right? Uh, because the social skills trainings on, on one hand, you know, many of us know what it's like, uh, adult autistics and being a parent, you know what it's like to either know your child really wants to fit in and they're having some kind of barrier to that happening and you want to help them um, as an autistic adult feeling like everyone else is sort of speaking a different language and I can't read the little cues that everyone else seems to get right there is to me sort of a, a balancing act that we have to do around destigmatizing the things that autistic people, many of us, not all of us, but many of us do as sort of a default and the things that neurotypical people tend to do as sort of a default, right? And not placing more social value on one than the other, but helping us bridge that divide. Um, because I don't think he mentioned the double empathy problem during this part, but it's what I was thinking about because I believe his name is Damien Milton. Yep. Yep. Has research on something called the double empathy problem, which looked at that when autistics and neurotypicals are trying to communicate, they there's disconnects, right? It does not, we end up with a DSM full of uh, things that autistics are doing wrong in communication, right? And when neurotypicals and neurotypicals communicate, they tend to get each other, right? They tend to not have those big ruptures in communication. Turns out though, when autistics and autistics communicate, we get each other. We don't really have those big ruptures in communication, right? And there's something wrong with just asking the disabled person to change how we are inside and what our default communication is like to fit the neurotypical version. When, when we're talking to ourselves, you know, our community, we get it just fine. Right. So I think the way that you, the way we talk about it in our family is using the neuro bears analogy, which neuro bears uh is a fantastic curriculum 
Well, um, it's it's by the woman who works with Kieran. She, she was in the Inside of Autism course that I took with Kieran as sort of a facilitator, monitoring the chat, different things. And she did create this curriculum where it, it with shows- her With her autistic a, child. Yes. So, right. So like, you know, you have different kinds of bears, right? We have a polar bear, we have a brown bear, and we have a panda bear. Um, they're all bears. Not one of them is not better than the other bears, right? Like they're just all bears. So using sort of biodiversity as a analogy for neurodiversity, I think really works for kids um, because it's something they, they understand, right? And, and of course they understand that polar bears are, or brown bears are not better than polar bears. They just have different needs because of their natural climate, right? Um, you might say that autistics have a lot of trouble in school because that environment, I'll tell you what, it was not made for polar bears, right? It was made for brown bears. Um, and you could argue that maybe not even that, but that's not the argument we're having right here. So sort of how can we take all of the, like the value judgments that we place on that miscommunication um, away and just very plainly speak, but that requires a destigmatization of being autistic and a, an understanding and a self-awareness that many folks are just not ready to necessarily have, right? So you still find these just really outdated social skills trainings. And I, I think I did mention this in the past few times, but um, Autistic Self-Advocacy Network has a gala um, every year and it was in November this year. Um, in the past years, it's been in October, different times. And I I can't remember if it was in 2020, but one of those years, they had this fabulous session and it was on YouTube, but I looked for it again and it's not there anymore. And it, I wish I could hear it again, but they were basically talking about neurotypical <laughs> communication and all of the things that can go awry with neurotypical communication in the same way that neurotypical medical model talks about autistic communication, like, oh, they're repetitive, they're black and white, they're this and that, like those stereotypes. They gave exactly similar examples for what neurotypicals do. Like, how come neurotypicals say, how are you? But they don't really want to know. How are you? It's small talk. That's that's a simple example. Some of the other examples were way more like poignant and clever. And like, it was so good. It was so good. I was like, totally accurate, like totally accurate. So um, yeah, to continue with uh, this parent's story, they they had said, you know, there are may, many behaviorists hired by the school district and, it, and it's hard, but, you know, Karen is saying we are, we're all working against the system. Hopefully 40, 50 years down the line, we're, we're preparing things for the generations to come. Uh, but we can only focus on what we can control. We can't control the system. So there are hard changes as to whether the child should leave that system. You know, some parents do choose to homeschool, but everybody doesn't have that opportunity. So we are empowered as parents more than the professionals, because especially when we're informed about this kind of stuff, we actually do know more than them. And so we need to change a lot of the people to break the system. So the more we can educate people in the system. <laughs> so to try and um, let's try and get the teacher to form a relationship with their child that will override those IEP goals. And so 
it, it may not be that speech therapist, it might be the teacher, it might be someone else. Um, Karen says that should all be relationship-based, getting to know the child first before any goals are set, because we need to know each individual child. And of course, we talk about that in DIR, the I for individual differences. And the child should be part of making these goals too. Now, again, depending on where they are developmentally and how young they are, like, you know, how are you going to ask a four-year-old, for instance, about goals? But they certainly can have some ideas that you can involve them in. And I commented also how unfair it is that it's so exhausting for parents to constantly have to advocate and fight for our kids to be treated with respect. It's just not fair, but so goes it. <laughs> sort of a... a a tone around uh, thinking more about what we were just talking about. Once a child is part of goal making, say it is a goal of theirs that they want to increase their normative social skills, right? That is a totally different situation than us forcing it on a child who does not yet have that desire, right? Yes. Um, because when a child says like, I do want to increase my social skills, you can have conversations that are very matter of fact. Uh, many people think that if you don't make eye contact with them, it's not a very polite greeting. You and I both know that we can look anywhere we want and it's still a polite greeting and it's fine. But if you're wanting to sort of up your normative skills, that is one thing that can help. That said, you also have to be cautious in taking care of your own body because when we try to take on so many of these normative practices and they don't come naturally to us, that is called masking. And when you do that over and over again, it takes so much internal energy to maintain that that it can be really hard for your body. So you need to, you know, we need to be talking about that at the same time as we're talking about normative social skills with these kids. Yes. And sort of on that same topic, I remember a parent commented that their child is obedient and obedient and compliant at school, doing whatever they were asked to do. The child is non-speaking. Um, at home, the child tries to have more fun, throwing things, pushing other destructive things, but in a fun way. The child is excited. They made a room in the basement where the child can throw and calm down. Um, it's like they have two different kids when they compare the child they have at home and the child being reported from school. For instance, the child doesn't like to wear pants at home and likes to do the things the child isn't supposed to do at school at home, right? Um, and I remember actually laughing at the pants example, because I have a child who is non-speaking, who at home, at anywhere but school, will not wear pants. But, uh, and I was very concerned about her starting school, because I was like, man, I got to get this child in pants. And I was very, very nervous about it. And at the beginning of school, I just explained to her, again, she's non-speaking, but I was like, so pants, I know you don't like them. They are part of school and you got to wear pants at school. And I was shocked because you know that that child wears pants at school every day without a single problem. I stressed for six months, Daria, about that simple, small thing. 
And I was so scared of it. Right. And then my child really surprised me. So the pants example, like touched me because I was like, Oh, yep, I know that. And then Karen uh, wondered if the child's sensory motor needs are being met movement, throwing, pushing child is seeking a lot of sensory input. The flip side of it is that the different behavior at home than at school could be that he's suppressing that all day. Um, and then when he's feeling safer, it comes tumbling out in a way that might feel impulsive to the parents who are seeing it happen, right? He suggested two things. An occupational therapist might help figure out if there's stuff at school that could be done to get that input while in school. He suggested having a conversation with the school to see if the child's needs are being met. The child might be suppressing all of the needs for movement at school, so they are masking. Um, and then that pent-up movement comes out at home. And I think this is where I was typing in chat because also the child is non-speaking, which could be a frustration if the child can't communicate their needs. How they, how can they help their child communicate their needs? Yeah, I, I remember I was saying in the chat things about AAC. Um, and I talked about in our, our previous parent perspective or retrospective that robust high-tech AAC really changed our lives as far as my child being able to communicate and honestly, their emotional regulation. So my first thought when that parent was talking was AAC. And then my thought was also what he was talking about, about the masking and about how hard it is for our kids to keep it together, right? With all of these expectations that do not come naturally to our bodies all day. Um, and that, of course, there's a, there's a home sort of decompression, right? Um, so that's so that where they feel safe. Experience that as well. Yeah. And what stood out to me in our parent perspectives, retrospective perspective podcast that you said was that your speech language therapists more than one said, oh, we can't do robust because they didn't do low tech AAC. So therefore we can't do high tech. And you were like hogwash and went ahead and did it. And I think that's still a myth out there that has to be squashed as well, is that we, all the self-advocates I've heard say, you need to get other ways to communicate besides verbally to the young children. Even if they end up developing verbal language, you want to get them and train them on AAC. And then again, how do you do that, right? Because you don't want to do like a, a training like an animal, like Chop, chop, do this. Good job. Here you go. Here's your reward kind of training either, but getting them uh, ways to communicate, which will help them be, will go so far. Um, the other thing, just because I'm familiar with this parent's questions over the years, I asked Kieran, like, what if the child is just doing things like throwing and stuff just to get a response from the parent? Because the child might know that the school won't put up with this, but it's really fun to get that emotional reaction out of the parent. Because as soon as you do something, the parent will be like, hey, don't do that or whatever, you know, like get all um, worried about it. And um, I know this because you know, my son is a mover and a shaker. He throws stuff all the time too. And sometimes he's super excited and he'll look to see the reaction, right? And he might do that at, at school as well, but at least maybe there there's just more um, understanding of the expectations. So while all of that that we just talked about might also be true, is there an aspect to this that he can he can comment on? And he wondered 
if uh, occupational therapist Virginia Spielman, who we mentioned earlier, um, would ever come as a, a support guest, and I hope that she will, uh, she might have lots of insights into that kind of thing as well. And, and I also suggested the DIR, ICDL's DIR, Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, um, home program, which is an individualized coaching program, really gives great feedback for parents too, because they get that one-on-one -on -one support every week. Um, and then we seem to have a theme of parents with minimally speaking children um, that had questions for Karen, which I loved. Um, another parent's minimally speaking 13 year old uh, comes home from school every day in fight or flight, like literally almost frozen. So they go for walks in the country after school to walk the, do walk the dog and in the woods, the child will run, scream and stim and the parent will support this, but wonders what to do because the school isn't communicating and the parent feels they're walking on eggshells anytime they ask about what happened during the day. They find it much easier to just join their child in that more quiet type of stimming that the child does. Kieran Ryder Way said, this sounds like real dysregulation that the child comes out of school in that heightened state of anxiety, which makes Kieran ask if this is a safe place for the child to be, especially if it takes hours every single day for the child to calm down. It really worried him. And he said it should be a place of learning where the child should be thriving and feeling safe and happy, and it should be constructive and positive experiences, but it doesn't sound like this is happening. So what is the context of what is happening in a social and behavior structure and how is the child being treated? It doesn't sound like this child's in a learning environment. And so Kieran mentioned from his own life that he had two, two of his three children were traumatized at school and they literally pulled them out of school um, they having no communication with the school is a massive red flag. The parent explained that the teacher always puts it on the child when the parent asks what's happening at school. So the parent suspects they could be isolating the child. Uh, the teacher says that, oh, the child doesn't do this, doesn't do that. The parent has to be very diplomatic about it because they don't want to make it worse. But Kieran says, you shouldn't have to feel like that. Like you have the right to know what's happening in that building with your child, what's happening at lunchtime, what's happening at break time. And in the parent is feeling it, it, the parent should trust what they're feeling in their gut. And that's a good compass of what's happening. So how do you approach the school? And if it's not approachable thinking about if, is this the right school? And this is a tough one because we have lots of parents talking about this all the time. And of course, all the parents don't have the luxury of pulling their children from school and homeschooling. Um, it is a massive, massive undertaking to find a new school for your child. Um, not only logistically, but emotionally. It's emotionally draining to have to go through and ask all the questions and wonder what was going on and wanting the school to see the best in your child. So um, yeah, my heart went out to this parent, and um, I think Kieran brought up some very good points that uh, will have the parent thinking about it and hopefully having a way to approach the school. Another parent's young child is very distressed very often and describes as very sensitive. Um, child hears things the parents can't hear. Um, there are only a few places that they can go. The child will have a meltdown with unpredictability. Um, in many places, uh, they're always, the parent feels like they're always walking on eggshells. So much is traumatic for the child.
The only way they can run errands is have one parent occupy the child so the other can go. School is just not an option. They are just trying to make it work. They're on a single income um, and it's very challenging. The child has extreme separation anxiety. Parent gets no break. And the parent was wondering, should the parent get help or accept that this is their reality and maybe it will change one day? Everything is ABA around them. Nobody knows gentle parenting. They've tried many things, but everything is just so difficult. They are trying to give the child as many positive experiences as they can. The child loves stop signs. They visit stop signs. Sometimes even just turning off the car sets the child off. Uh, they just want their child to be happy and safe, which was a very relatable question. Kieran said that um, he sees that parents have very little autonomy in the moment. There is empowerment in making the best of what they have rather than lamenting about what could be. It's the hard thing about having a disabled child in any way. You recognize that your life might not be what you thought. When anyone has children, it's always a possibility. Things might not happen in the way you thought. There is an element to grief to it that is very rational, he said. It's a process. It would be empowering to look at what you do have. You have a strong relationship with each other and a child you adore, Karen told the parent. Uh, these are two priceless things. Take stock of that first. Yes, there are many frustrations, but there's also positivity. Uh, pull back on the expectations. The child has a lot going on, on and things won't always be that way. That's something that I found really important to think about myself, that things may be hard right now, but they are not like this forever. I, I mean, for better or for worse, even the things that are easy might be hard later, right? But it most definitely will not stay the same way forever, right? The way the child acts now is not how they will act at, say, 24. It sounds like the parent is doing all of the right things. Um, putting the right things in place, such as finding safe spaces, going to the child, keeping the child safe, and one day trying something different. One day that child will surprise them. That will happen. Things will change without the parent even realizing it. In three or four years, you will wonder how you got there. <laughs> uh, it sounds like their gut is telling you that this is the right thing to do, he said. Um, it's taking pressure off of yourself. Um, let's not think about what might have been or what others have. What you have is pretty special and you're doing great. Yeah, I love I loved that. I, I loved that it, you know, it really speaks to that whole journey that we go on. Dr. Robert Nassif talks about ambiguous loss where we have to deal with our own grief and accepting that things are not the way we thought they would be. And that, yes, if we have a child with a disability, it can be very stressful, but we can't put that on the child. And so Kieran's saying, like, really accept the child for who they are. You're doing all the right things. You love this child. You want to give the child happy experiences. Sounds like it's great. And just know that it's not going to be like this forever. So I, I loved that sentiment. I will put a link to that podcast on ambiguous loss in the resources. And I will say, I always... I get a little triggered when I hear the grief narrative. I think you and I have talked about this before. And I'm not sure why, except for um, maybe the timing of it, right? Just because it's usually brought up right after diagnosis. And um, and that's just such a fraught time. Um, I'm not denying, I guess, that, that there are definitely hard things about being the parent of disabled children. 
but I will say it's my experience that by far the things that are hardest about it are the systems. They are not the child, right? So I, I grieve that, you know, I fight with school stuff constantly, right? But I'm not, I'm not grieving that my child doesn't just fit in school. I'm grieving. Oh, for sure. School is the way it is, right? And yeah. those are different, um, somewhat different in my brain. Yeah, and I, I think the issue in this case was that this child is is sort of still preschool age, but literally melts down constantly with almost everything that happens. And yet they're doing everything they can for this child. So like, what's going on? Like, why is this child so distressed all the time? And they're just exhausted and they're drained and, you know, they're, they're on a single income because of having to care for this child. And, and they're just like, is it always going to be this way? Like, this is really hard. And, you know, Kieran was just saying, like, really take stock of, of all the positives. Like, you love this child. You, he loves stop signs. You go and you do all these fun things and, and keep doing that and focus on that because, the other things, you know, a few years will pass by, you'll look back and you'll be like, oh my goodness, we really came far. I think all of us can relate to, although um, all of our kids may not have um, as high support needs as this, these parents' child, maybe we can all relate to situations where, especially when our kids were babies, we were like, oh my goodness, like what is going on? Like, you know, my child was up every two hours and constantly needed movement and, you know, screamed and shrieked at certain things. And I was just like, am I ever going to get to sleep again? You know, we can all relate to those kinds of moments. And this is just chronic with this family. So um, just they're doing the right things. They're they're reaching out to the right um, supports just trying to get breaks for each other. And, and just, um, it's hard. It can be really hard. Um, but they love their child, which, which is, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I think not future tripping is that's what, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but, um, when I sort of apply my current reality to like every pathway I see of what the future looks like, that's future tripping to me. Right. And I, I think, I did a lot of that when my kids were really young. Um, and one benefit to having multiple kids who are autistic, I think, is that you you kind of can see progression of things and you can watch like, oh, the things older sister does now, I never would have thought when she was little sister's age that we would even be able to have that a conversation about that, much less her do it independently. Right. Um, so I have the benefit of sort of seeing, uh, you know, like two examples in front of me at all time, but, but not, not sort of thinking that just because things are, are very, very difficult right now. And they are that they will always be exactly like that. Another parent piped up and suggested they have something that vibrates to have the child hold when they turn off the car. So the child can deal with the car turning off, which is really smart. Another parent found the work of uh, Kristen Neff on self-compassion helpful, as well as the work of Casey Ehrlich of At Peace Parents on radical acceptance to be immensely helpful. Casey focuses on PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance, which is somewhat controversial as a term, but those of us who are parents definitely can understand what is being talked about 
if you have PDA kids, but part of her transformational journey to being at peace included floor time, which I did not know. We don't all have stories of struggles. We had a parent share that their child finally was able to shower and not be scared anymore. Yay! (laughs) Isn't it amazing? I mean, our kids do surprise us. You think that uh, they're never ever going to be able to bathe or shower again because they're terrified of the water or the sound of the shower, whatever it is, the echoing set, the echoes, and all of a sudden showered. So we had a celebration moment. Another parent then asked, uh, how do they talk about their child to others in front of their child to people who don't yet know about their child's diagnosis and who seem to be surprised by the child's actions? So maybe they had uh, quote unquote awkward behaviors, etc. The parent wants their child to know that they're absolutely loved and respected. And I shared that, yeah, it's so hard when we learn information about our children and become more informed and then resent that others aren't as informed as us. (laughs) So if you think about the lay person's view of our children, yeah, it might look odd to them. And we, it it looked odd to us initially too, but then we're defending our child. We'd become more informed and all of a sudden, you know, we want everybody else to be as informed. So um, this is where I, I really liked, you know, people jumping in, um, helping inform others that are more open to learning and also having that idea in our head that, you know, we have to remember what it was like before we knew anything and how to start educating others. So one parent had someone say to them recently, um, because their child was stimming and the parent allowed them to stim, um, so much, as the child naturally wants to wants to do so when happy that the other person said, oh, you're feeding their autism and you're going to make it grow. <laughs> so this was like a comment that a parent said, oh, this happened to me. You know, like this is what a parent said. Another parent said, oh, well, in Dr. Barry Prezant's book, Uniquely Human, he shared how he met a family who were told that they couldn't let their child play with a toy because she the way she was playing with it, because it would make her more autistic. And he wrote how ridiculous it was. So um, they were just giving examples about how, you know, people say these things and, oh, you're going to make your child more autistic and stuff. And this other parent was saying, you know, Dr. Barry Prezant basically said, no, that's ridiculous. (laughs) And then, yeah, you suggested something at that point, Cass. Yeah, I did. I remember I piped up and I kind of gave a, a, air quote of, um, oh gosh, yes, that is a common misconception. Um, Thanks for bringing it up. Stimming is actually a form of self-regulation by definition. We're so proud of his growing self-regulation skills, right? So you sort of, you turn it into a, a positive. You're not denying it's happening. You're not trying to like your, your child who is listening is not hearing you apologize for it right? Um, instead, you are reframing it. Um, and you're giving that other parent or person opportunity to Google some new things, right? So yeah, no, I, I loved that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to use that too. Next time someone sort of makes fun of my child, I'm going to uh, say, oh, actually, it's a form of self exactly what you said, I'm gonna like, write it down, keep it in my purse or something. So I can, or on my phone, I'll glance at it. And then I'll turn around and say it. I don't remember Kieran commenting so much on that, but another 
parent had wondered if Kieran advises keeping non-speaking children at home until they can communicate in some way or have, you know, like, how are they going to know what's going to happen at school? Like, should we just keep them home until they can communicate? And Kieran said, well, it very much first depends on what school you're thinking about. Finding out what schools will validate the child. You could also consider homeschooling if you have that option. But before learning or anything else, the big question is whether or not they'll be safe. So what's right for them? What keeps them safe? And instead of focusing on the child needing to be in school, Kieran says, realizing that this is a lifelong journey. There's going to be lots of different opportunities. He has friends his age in his 40s who are going back to school now. And of course, he's talking about, you know, more post-secondary style of school, but still uh, because it's the right time for them. And, you know, most people do that in their early 20s. So the right things happen at different times was his point. And just take those normative expectations off of you was Kieran's sort of final word. It was such a refreshing, wonderful meeting, that parent support meeting with Kieran Rose as guest. So we were so grateful to have him and we thanked him. And thank you, Cass, for helping me recount that parent support meeting today on our Parent Perspectives podcast. I'm happy to be here. And honestly, I was so busy in the chat through a lot of that, that it was really nice to sort of be able to go through it again with you. Um, I feel like I got to experience it a second time. So yeah. And that's why I'm doing these podcasts because some of those, I mean, all of the parent support groups are valuable, but some of these meetings just have these gems that really want to bring out to the world. And a lot of practitioners always say, can I come to parent support meeting? And we say, no, um, we, we have restricted it to parents only, but they want to hear what things parents bring. And so this podcast allows them to hear what was asked and how Kieran responded and what other parents responded. And so um, hopefully parents find it helpful. Thanks, everybody. Uh, check out the blog post at affectautism.com, parent perspectives. And until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.